Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by the French Lick Resort, the PGA Tour Superstore, the Bobby Jones Apparel Company, Ben Hogan Golf, Two Under, Taylor Made Golf, and Golf Pride. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and welcome to Next on the Tee. It's always a privilege spending this time with you and being a part of your weekly golf content. Want to kick off the show by giving a shout-out to one of our sponsors, the Macklemore, which is a, a beautiful community resort and golf course just 35 minutes outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee, on Lookout Mountain. And, folks, you got to see this place to believe it. I say that every week, but it's really true. Go online to themacklemore.com. Everything about what they have up there is beautiful. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones and our friend Kip Henley on Twitter a while back said outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. See why he says that by checking out the course and the resort online at themacklemore.com. All right, tonight, my first guest is a longtime friend of the show, and that's Bob Friend Jr. Bob played out on the regular tour and the Champions Tour. We'll talk about his experience playing at the 2016 Senior Open at Carnoustie. We'll also talk about guys like Jordan Spieth, who is starting to waggle over the ball for a long time. A lot of noise going on in that mind, it seems like. We'll also talk about player-caddy relationships, the reverse K setup, and a whole lot more when Bob joins me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a visit from John Cook. John's won 21 times between the regular tour and the Champions Tour. He was also a three-time All-American at Ohio State. Jack Nicholas and Tom Weisskopf actually recruited him to come be a Buckeye, so we'll talk about that story. We'll also talk about some of his wins on tour, plus some memories from the majors he's had an opportunity to play in, and his insights on the upcoming tour playoffs. And his weekend, he's going to be at the Legends of Golf out in Branson, Missouri, so we'll talk about that tournament a little bit as well. John will join me about 25 minutes from now. Then we'll round out tonight's show with a visit from one of the top instructors in the game, Bob Grissett. Bob is headquartered now down in South Florida, played his college golf down there at the University of Miami, which I was surprised to learn no longer has a men's golf team. So very surprised about that. They've got a women's program, no men's team. We'll see if Bob knows why. We'll also talk about some playing lessons. How can we fix our slice? Or if we've got a pull hook, how can we fix that? Plus, what made Jack Nicholas such a great putter? Bob will join me about 45 minutes from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Tee. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Want to start off, as I always do, saying hello to my good friends Mitch and Matthew Lawrence and reminding you about their great golf shows. Mitch's podcast is called Talking Golf Getaways. He and his co-host Darren Bunch are going to let you know about great places you can go stay and play around the U.S. and Canada. Also going to let you know about some of the courses that you might not be aware of. You can stream their podcast over on GolfTripX.com. It's also available on Audio Boom, Stitcher, and Player.fm. So if you love golf and travel, their show is going to meet all of the needs, and it's really fantastic. Check it out online, again, at GolfTripX.com. Matthew's show is called Backspin Golf. It's my regular Sunday morning, 8.03 a.m. Eastern Tea Time. Never miss an episode. Because Matthew is just a, a fantastic host. He's got a lot of great guests, including 
our friend Perry French at the top of the show every week. You can stream the show live by going online to WLXG.com or download the WLXG app. Tune in. I promise you, you're going to love the show. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade TP5 and TP5X golf balls. Played by Ricky Fowler, John Rahm, Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, and Jason Day. It's the hottest tour ball in golf. Now, I know you know those names, but thousands of other golfers have already made the switch to TP5 and TP5X. And now it's available in high-visibility yellow. Are you the next to make the switch? Check it out online by going to TaylorMadeGolf.com for more information. All right, now back and get this, making his 14th appearance with me here on Next on the Tee. Like I said at the top, is one of my all-time favorite guests, and that's Bob Friend Jr. Let me remind you about Bob's background. He's from my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, played his college golf at LSU, where he and David Thompson and the rest of their LSU teammates won the 1986 SEC Championship. He had 11 career top 10 finishes while at LSU. He won the Pennsylvania State Championship in back-to-back years in 1984 and 85. Turned pro in 87. He played on the Corn Ferry Tour, the PGA Tour, and the Champions Tour. He had five top 10 finishes his rookie year out on the Corn Ferry Tour, including a second place finish at the El Paso Open. Got his first win at the 1991 Fort Wayne Open. He had five top 10 finishes in 1994, three more in 97. In all, he finished in the top 10 27 times. Baseball fans, particularly Pittsburgh Pirates fans, are going to remember his father, who pitched in the major leagues from 1951 to 1966 and was a key member of the 1960 Pirates World Championship team that beat the New York Yankees. And I bet on top of all of the accolades that Bob has achieved so far in his golf or his business career, this might be the top of the list. This year, he was named the Leukemia Lymphoma Society Man of the Year for the amount of money he's been able to raise for that charity. He's been a great friend of the show since my first season back in 2014, and I'm thrilled he's back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Bob, how are you, my friend? Chris, I could not be better. My goodness, you really embellished there. <laughs> I didn't know I'd done so much stuff, but thank you very much. Absolutely. 2020 Leukemia Lymphoma Society Man of the Year. Good for you, my friend. Talk about what you're doing to help out that organization. Well, so what it is is that I had a very good friend and client by the name of Peter Katz who was named Leukemia Lymphoma Society Man of the Year last year, and I helped him raise some money. And so Peter approached me this year in January, just said, hey, he said, you know, you'd probably be pretty good at this. Uh, You have a lot of connections. You know a lot of people. Uh, Would you be interested in in running? And basically what it is, it's your basically, it's a fundraiser. And ideally, it's supposed to be from uh, March 5th until May 16th, and then uh, after that, then there's a big gala, and what you do is you, you're raising as much money as you can in that basically, um, you know, 10-week period, and um, then COVID hit. And so I, I signed up to, to run with about six other people, six other men, and, um, you know, basically just I, I, I reached out to Bob Estes, I reached out to David Toms, I reached out to a lot of friends, uh, Howard Hanna, uh, Real Estate Services, Dick Sporting Goods. And then just a lot of really good friends all around the country that donated. So I'm really not the hero. I'm just calls. Um, but I was able to raise around $53,000 this year in the middle of this pandemic. Um, it's not as much as I wanted to raise. And we had a virtual celebration. Uh, and we actually extended it one more month. So it basically ended in the middle of June. 
And um, I was named there. I was as shocked as anybody. And uh, so as Leukemia Lymphoma Society Man of the Year, I do, uh, I do some, uh, I guess, some charity speaking events, trying to make people aware of the blood cancer, I'm trying to defeat blood cancers. And I'll do here's some like guest appearances you do. Um, but for the most part, I'm just, I'm just so thankful for all the great friends and the, and the companies that supported my campaign and they are the real heroes. So uh, it's quite an honor. And well, again, we raised $53,000 for leukemia lymphoma and, um, all the money goes to the charity and it, it you know, Mario Lemieux, um, is a good friend. He, he donated a signed Jersey, Bill Mazeroski, uh, donated a signed golf ball or a signed baseball, Paul Azinger. Uh, donated some uh, Ryder Cup memorabilia from his captaincy in 2008. So, again, like I said, David Toms, Bob S. is some of my tour friends, and uh, my dad's old teammate, Bill Mazarazzi. So I'm very thankful for everybody. Well, kudos to you and all of them, Bob, for, for doing what you did. That's that's outstanding stuff. So, and, and particularly during, you know, the, a pandemic like we're going through now, to be able to raise that kind of money uh, uh, speaks volumes to everybody who got involved. Again, kudos to you guys. Thank before you. we get before we get into the uh, into the golf stuff, Bob, I've got to get a quick thought. Um, SEC football, college football, and uh, and NFL football. Are we going to have a football season? How do you think they can pull it off? Well, I think the I think the SEC is going to get it done. Um, I'm very disappointed in the Big Ten. Um, I'm very disappointed in the Pac-12. I just again, I think that. Uh, you pull the trigger a little bit early. I'm not downplaying the seriousness of this of this virus. However, when you take a look to see the ages of the young men that are playing, and if you go and you can successfully quarantine them, really see, you know, you have very very few people with a mortality rate um, that's anywhere other than minuscule uh, with healthy young men getting it. And I think that if you can go and you can kind of keep them separated from the elderly, from those with pre-existing conditions. I don't see why any reason why you can't be out there playing. And I just feel so sick for these young kids and these athletes and all the, all the fall sports. Basically, they've trained their life. They've worked their rear ends off their families, especially in the, uh, the non-rev sports, such as tennis, such as golf, uh, you know, such as track and field, where the parents have been taking these kids all over the United States for travel events, everything else, to get them into college and uh, only to have their season canceled or postponed i think it's a damn shame um but i think that we will have sec football uh as far as the nfl uh you know who knows i i i'd be honest with you um i am more of an sec college football fan than i am a professional football fan anymore bob let's switch over to golf and and you put out a tweet last week talking about Hogan's Alley and playing in the 2016 Senior Open Championship there at Carnoustie. Talk about the golf course and what it was like being a part of that event. Well, I can tell you it was, it was my first trip to UK to play golf. And a lot of people are like, oh, I can't believe you didn't do that. But what people have to understand is this. I competed, uh, you know, all over the world in my quote-unquote prime for about 17 years. I played in South Africa. I played all through Canada. I played Central America. I played the PGA Tour, as you as you noted, and the Corn Ferry Tour, as you noted. Um, when you are playing as much as I did, and I was a journeyman, you know, you're going to have John Conley, one of my heroes, one of the truly great golf swings um, that I have ever seen in terms of its simplicity and its efficiency. 
Um, when you go and you take a look at, I was playing 30 to 35 weeks every single week, every single year on the PGA Tour and, and Corn Ferry Tour. When you have a week off, the last thing you want to do is hop on a plane, fly six hours with some knucklehead friends and go play a week golf trip. So I never went. And so I actually was playing, competing on the Champions Tour a little bit in 2016. And a lot of the guys I hang out with just said, you ought to go over and try to qualify. And I took a look at it. And the, uh, the European Tour does a wonderful job in terms of their qualifying spots. They had, you know, four locations, 100 guys, 10 spots each location. I thought, you know, I can do that. So I flew over and uh, I qualified at a place called Montefiath, which is where Tom Watson played his first round ever in Scotland. And I shot 72. I qualified. And I was so excited. I actually went over by myself. I, I, I roomed by myself. And I just, I fell in love with Scotland. It was amazing. I just couldn't get the smile off my face. And uh, then I went over to Carnoustie and I played uh, my practice round on Tuesday with, uh, with Brant Job. And um, it was, it was amazing. The golf course is so hard. Um, and the finishing holes of 15, 16, 17, and 18 are like two miles of Lonesome Road. And you, you sit there and you talk about you know, what is the true mark of a great golf course? The true mark of a great golf course is if you play it and two, three, five years down the road, you can remember every hole. I remember every single hole at Carnoustie. I just think it's absolutely brilliant. It has a lot of Oakmont to it, and it's very penal. Talk about that sixth hole there at Carnoustie. Uh, dogs wag their tails up and down there, and people walk their single file. Uh, it's hard to believe that Ben Hogan took the aggressive line up the left-hand side where you have no nothing to stop. It's not like playing in the U.S. Open United States, where if you get a ball on the ground, it starts running, and then you've got the heavy rock to keep it from going into real trouble. Um, over there, I mean, literally, it's like an airport runway. So you get one going a little bit left, uh, the ball is going to go out of bounds. And the bunkers that, that go in the center of the fairway on that particular hole are like coffins. And uh, I, of course, aimed it at those bunkers, and I, I slid it up out there each and every day and played up the right side, the fat side. Um, but I made the cut. You know, I, I, had a, I had a lot of fun there. Um, 18th holder is one of the great finishes. And it's li literally with all the tournament golf that I've played, the, the most fun I have ever had, other than it was almost winning the Canadian Open, um, was competing in the 2016 Senior Open Championship of Carnoustie. It was the best experience of my life. It was awesome. So that begs the question, while you were there, did you just play there and come back, or did you, you tour around a little bit and take in some of the other local golf courses? No, what I did was I actually I got there on Friday, and I played Kings Barnes, um, which was absolutely brilliant as well. I played with a good buddy by the name of Greg Bruckner, and uh, Brucky and I played there. And then on, uh, on you know, then Saturday and Sunday, I played practice rounds at Montefiath, and then I said, uh, shot 72 on Monday. There were four men for two spots. I got in uh, in the playoff, and I was fortunate to get through in the third extra hole. But it was one of those things where, um, you know, I probably could have stayed over there, but I really didn't have make any plans. And uh, I'll go back. My goal is to take my boys over there uh, in a few years and, and just have, like, a nice long week where we make a lot of arrangements and play some of those great golf courses because I love it. I absolutely love Scotland and the way the game of golf is played over there. Good for you. Good for them. Bob, you also commented on a video of Jordan Spieth on the on the practice tee last week over at the Wyndham Championship. He's 
waggling there, you know, before he you know, could pull the trigger on a on a practice drive. He sort of stood over the ball for about 20 seconds, which to me is just another sign that there's a there's a lot going on in his mind. He sort of reminded me of uh, Billy Chapel and for the love of the game. He needs to clear the mechanism in order to just go out and play. If, if you're a guy like Speed Bob, how do, you, how do you clear your thoughts and just go out and play the game of golf and quit all the stuff that's going on in your head? Well, he clearly, he clearly has struggled the last several years. Um, I think he has over-instructed. I think here's the number one thing that I think that a lot of great players get into. Um, trying to be perfect. You know what? You're, you're not going to be perfect. You know, Bob Rotella, who I worked with for 28 years, uh, his great book, Golf is Not a Game of Perfect. You know, you can't, you're not going to perfect the game. Um, you have to go out there and you have to see your target as a, as a tournament player. So look, if you're at the, the average amateur that's, that's listening to your game, you're just getting started. Yes, there is some, it's a very difficult game, but you know, the game is made up of grip, posture, ball position, alignment. You work on those four fundamentals and then you basically have your swing. Arnold Palmer famously said, you got to swing your swing. I think that what Jordan Spieth is trying to do right now, I think that he is trying to be perfect. Um, you don't have to be perfect. You have to be athletic. You know, what, what the game of golf is, it's a very slow reaction sport. In tennis, um, in hockey, you're dealing with the puck. In tennis, you're dealing with the ball. In baseball, you're dealing with the baseball. And the ball comes in, you see it, and then you react to it. The game of golf, the ball is not the object. The target is the object. And so what you want to do when you when you play tournament golf, when you play any kind of golf, is you start back behind the ball and you briefly decide a picture or a feel or a sound of what you want to create in your golf swing. You hold your picture in your mind's eye. You step up to the ball. And while you're swinging at the ball, you hold the picture of your mind's eye in your mind and you swing away. Um, you know, you, you can't control what happens. Once the golf ball leaves the club face, the only thing you can control is your reaction to what happens. And when you go and you see a guy like Jordan Spieth, who is at the very pinnacle of the game, stand over a practice shot for 25, 30 seconds, he's got way too much going on. What he should be doing in terms of practicing is that if he is working with something on his golf swing with his instructor, he needs to go and have every 10 balls on that for four swings. Okay, this is what I'm going to work on, and I'm going to base uh, whether or not I was successful with it with the ball flight. Not whether it went to the target, but the ball flight. And then you throw away your aiming rod that's on the ground, and the next six shots are just routine, where you start step back. Everybody has a routine. My routine was always step into it, take a waggle, a look, a waggle, and then go. So what you want to do is that he wants to, he, you want to get back behind the ball in your practice, decide what you want to hit, fade, high, low, left, right, whatever, hold your target, and literally just practice your routine without any swing thoughts for six shots. So you want to be athletic, you want to be reactive to your target, and then the next four balls you work on what you're working on physically, the next six balls. He has got to get more athletic. We saw this with Sergio Garcia about 15 years ago. When he got to the point where he was taking 20, at one point he was taking 27 waggles and looks, he just, he couldn't pull the trigger because it's, it's, it's paralysis by analysis. And I think that the best thing that Jordan can do is just get away from his instructor a little bit 
and work on shaping and creating shots in practice and in his mind and stepping up there and doing the best that he can to trust it where you're actually taking swings and not making swings, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And to to your point, in in that explanation, you talked about him being over-instructed and needing maybe to get away from his instructor. So in that in that yeah. vein, Bob, is it time for him? Is that is that a way to kind of clear everything going on in his head by taking a break from Cameron McCormick and just kind of getting out there and doing it on his own so that maybe that helps to press the reset button? Absolutely. And I don't think he gets a new teacher. I just think he tells Cameron, you know what? I've got everything I need for right now. I need to go out. I need to figure out how to play the game of golf instead of the game of swing. And it's absolutely what he, it's absolutely what he needs to do. You know, the, the, I never understood it. You know, years ago, I used to, I played some casual golf with Jack Nicholas, and he was talking to his oldest son, Jackie, who was my close friend. And he, I remember listening to him and, and Jack was always talking about, well, you know, this, you do this. And he said, just, you got to be athletic. And you know what? It, it, at the time, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. Now at the age of 56, with the people that I have taught and all the golf that I've played, you have to be athletic. It, you have to be reactive to your target. And you can't do that when your mind is cluttered up with all this rubbish and swing thoughts and worried about being perfect. Again, worrying about making swings. You want to go out there and take swings. And he needs to go out, you know, one of the great things that my college golf coach, Buddy Alexander at LSU, he never overtaught us because we had to figure out that if it got going sideways on the golf course, we had to figure out how to get it straightened out on our own while we were on the fly on the golf course. He wasn't there to hold our hand. I learned an awful lot from him. He was a great golf coach. Bob, you talk about playing, you know, some some with with Mr. Nicholas. I know you, you played in his tournament, the Memorial, back in the late 80s. Um, I think, yeah, I think I remember you telling the story one time about getting an opportunity when you were playing at the Memorial to, uh, to have a couple of practice rounds with Mr. Nicholas. What's yeah, it, it like actually, playing it actually, with him? It was actually, the, it was actually late nineties, Chris, and you're correct. I played both years. It was funny. I was uh, 98 was, uh, was my first year in the Memorial and I was actually just breezing through the locker room and I was, I was on my way to the practice tee and, uh, I hear this voice behind me. Hey, friendly. I turn around. You know, you know the voice because it's a very distinctive, relatively high voice. It's like, hey, friendly. Hey, Mr. Nicholas, how are you? Great. Hey, congratulations in the tournament. Where are you headed? I said, well, on the practice range. He said, well, we go play nine holes. I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, if Jack Nicholas <laughs> asks you to play anywhere, you're going to drop what you're doing. Um, yeah, so we played, we played our practice round there on Tuesday. I uh, just played nine holes the back nine. And then the next year I had qualified for his tournament again. And uh, I got to my locker, he left me a note, and he said, uh, see you Tuesday at 11 o'clock, number 10. So it was great. It was, he was, he is, and, and look, Tiger is fantastic. This, Jack Nicholas is the greatest player in the history of the game, not only because of his record, obviously 18 majors, 19 seconds, 56 top three finishes overall. But the fact of the matter is that the guy never – and Tiger's an unbelievable ball striker. Nicholas – I never saw Nicholas miss a, miss a, miss a hole two fairways over. Um, he was the longest straight driver in the history of the game. People don't understand the power that the gentleman had in 1961. He broke the inserts out of nine drivers. 
This is these are not pinnacle range balls. These are like super balls. And it was just an unbelievable experience just to watch the Christmas of his shots. He's just he's just a remarkable human being and the greatest the greatest asset on top of all the wonderful physical attributes he had was that mind of his. It was uh I mean if I had if I put that brain in my body, I probably would have blown a gasket. He was just absolutely <laughs> brilliant and smart and the ability to compartmentalize everything of his life. He was you know, a lot of people don't realize when he won the eighty six Masters. He was on the actual the, the the precipice of complete financial collapse. He had lost a lot of money in a land development deal up in New York, St. Andrews, and uh, he made a mistake. He got he got he put his personal wealth into the project, thought he couldn't miss, and he lost his rear end in it. And he was on the precipice of total financial collapse. Most people would be sucking their thumb in a corner. Here, the guy goes out at the age of 46 and wins the Masters. So the guy's mind is of, of like nothing that this game has ever seen. Bob, I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to get your thoughts on, you know, the a player-caddy relationship. When you're playing out on tour, what were some of the things that you wanted and expected from your caddy? And what were some things that you didn't want your caddy to do? Well, you always want your caddy to be positive. You know, if you're up there on a on a uh, on a tee, you know, there's a right way to say a thing, a wrong way to say things. You know, you're sitting up there and you've got uh, you've got bunkers on the left, and uh, you know, the, the wide open the right. You know, you don't want your caddy to say, whatever you do, don't hit it left here. You know, it's, it's you always <laughs> want to be in the positive. You know, the caddy would say to you, let's keep it up the right hand side here, or you know, if you've got a whole location that's cut over on the left hand side and the left is just absolute death. You know, your caddy is not going to say, yeah, whatever you do, let's make sure we don't miss it left. The caddy say, hey, you know, he'll give you a good target. Hey, I like the, I like the T in CBS Sports behind, uh, behind the green there. Let's fall in love with that target. Let's get a real good positive thought. You know, a good caddy, on top of the fact that when you show up to the practice ground before you play a round of golf, every club is out of your bag. They have rubbed down, wiped down every single grip. They've got your tees ready. They've got everything ready so you have to do anything. And then on the golf course, a good caddy is like a jockey, is like racing the Kentucky Derby. You know, as, as you sometimes see it, you know, you watch a horse race. Sometimes the jockey just kind of flashes that crop in the horse's eye and sometimes gives him a whack on the rear end. And that's what a good caddy will do. A good caddy needs to know when to, when to show his player the crop. And a good caddy knows when to give his player a real good smack on the behind. And a good caddy is always going to have a good, positive, soft player, but you're also going to be very organized in terms of the notes that you have taken. Like if you play on Tuesday and you get up on the 12th hole and you hit your tee shot on tournament day, you know, your caddy, you got like 167 to the hole. Your caddy will say, okay, uh, we got, we have 150 to the front. You've got 167 to the hole. You've got a little bit of ridge. You got to get the ball over on Tuesday in our practice round. We had 169. You hit eight iron, it flew 163 and released out to 168. So the caddy, the caddies on tour, they know exactly to the yard, exactly where each ball landed and where it finished out in your practice round. So when you're out there and you're in between clubs, you can say, okay, well, on Tuesday, we had 185 and you hit six, it flew 173 and released out to 178. They will have that to organize. But most importantly, they're going to know when to talk, when to be quiet, and usually it's the guys on tour. You want your caddy out there just for good conversation in between shots. Keep your mind relaxed in between shots. And when that bag is set down next to the golf ball, 
that's when you start drawing in your focus and your energy. Bob, just a couple more before I let you go. And speaking to Caddy, give me your thought about what happened at the U.S. Amateur this past week. Segundo Oliva uh, Pinto lost his match on the 18th hole to the eventual champion, Tyler Strafasi, because his caddy reached into the bunker and touched the sand. Talk about why that's a no-no. Well, the first thing is what the most disappointing thing about is that the caddy lied. Okay, you don't lie. I mean, I'm I'm sorry. Um, you know, if you sit there, you got the overhead camera. We all know that there are cameras and videos everywhere. The guy lied. So what had happened? The guy he made a mental mistake. You know, he kind of fell asleep at the wheel. He's a club caddy out there. He's probably accustomed to doing that for his amateurs. It's a very rough golf course, so it's probably a situation where when he's kind of for these amateurs. You've got some places, as, as, as all who have been out there, the wind blows like 30, 35 miles an hour. So it's going to whip some of that sand out of those bunkers. And he's probably accustomed to going in there as his player approaches and just kind of testing the sand and say, hey, you know what, there's not much sand here. In an effort to try to help the amateur player. He made a mental mistake. But for him to lie about it was really, really disappointing. Bob, before I let you go, give us an update on how things are going uh, with the family. You're your beautiful wife, Claire, your, your sons, Charlie and Andrew, your daughter, Libby. How's everybody at home? Everybody's doing great, Chris. My son, Charlie, lives in Columbus, where he graduated from Ohio State, and he's working for Morgan Stanley. My daughter, Libby, just graduated from Boulder in May, and she is a second-grade school teacher at Park Lane Elementary in Aurora, Colorado. Today was her first day with her class. It's virtual. First day with her class, second graders. They're all monsters, as we know. And uh, my youngest son, Andrew, is playing one more year of junior college golf at Jefferson City Community College in Birmingham, Alabama. They play a great schedule. He's down there on scholarship, and he is immensely talented. He just needs to mature a little bit on the golf course. Probably all those years he spent not listening to his dad. (laughs) No doubt. Bob, before I let you go. Let our listeners know how can they stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing now and follow you on social media. Well, my social media is with regards to golf is at Bob friend underscore golf. And I will chime in mostly uh, watching golf tournaments, making some observations. Um, and then they can also follow me. Bob friend at Howard is my email. I am the uh, sales director for the Howard Hanna squirrel Hill office. Out of Pittsburgh, Howard Hanna is the third largest real estate company in the United States, and we're the largest family-owned real estate company in the United States. And uh, I've got a great age. I've got great agents, 75 great agents. And uh, my website there is Bob Friend at Howard Hanna. You can just look me up, and we'll we'll talk about buying and selling real estate. Well, Bob, my friend, you are the best. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show and do it as often as you have. You're absolutely one of my all-time favorites. I hope I get the uh, privilege of catching up with you again real soon. Well, Chris, with this COVID thing, my plan was to have you out to Oakmont this this fall, but that is, uh, it's been a little bit crazy. So hopefully we can do it next year. I want to thank you. I want to thank all the men and women in our military. We cannot thank you enough for our service. And all the men and women in blue and the men and women in the fire departments, we love you. You guys are indispensable. You're all heroes. And Chris, as always, you are the most prepared talk show host in golf. I appreciate you, my friend. That means a great deal to me. Take care. Stay safe. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up again soon, Bob.
Anytime, Chris. Cheers. God bless. See you, Bob. That's a great Bob Friend Jr., folks. Like I said, 14 times on the show, he's been, uh, I think he was on episode three back in 2014 when we first started this thing. And he has been a wonderful friend and a great guest uh, over the years. I can't thank him enough. Rooting hard for Andrew, how his uh, his young golf career starts to round out and take, uh, take shape, starts listening to his dad. Looking forward to catching up with Bob again real soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, John Cook, I want to give a shout-out to our friends over at the Ben Hogan Golf Company. When Ben Hogan founded his company in 1953, his mission was to make the finest golf equipment in the world, and that remains their mission today. They forge every club they make to provide the feel and feedback investment clubs simply can't provide. And their craftsmen micromanufacture each club to your exacting specifications in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. You'll only find Ben Hogan Golf Equipment at BenHoganGolf.com. Visit them online today to learn more about their great products and their great prices. And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. All right, now joining me here on Next on the T is Champions Tour Pro and Sirius XM radio host John Cook. Let me give you some background on John. He's from Toledo, Ohio, but grew up in Southern California. He went back and played his college golf at Ohio State, where he was a three-time All-American. He helped them win three consecutive Big Ten titles from 1977 to 1979 and the 1979 National Championship. He won six individual titles while he was at Ohio State. He also won the Les Bolstad Award for the lowest stroke average in the conference each year from 1977 to 1979, and he was inducted into their Hall of Fame in 1986. John won the U.S. Amateur Championship in 1978 and finished second to Mark O'Meara in 79. He won several amateur championships, including the California State Am in 1975 and the Ohio Amateur in 1978 and 79. He turned pro later that year in 79. He won his first PGA Tour event in 1981 at the Bing Crosby National Pro-Am by beating Hale Irwin, Bobby Clampett, Ben Crenshaw, and Barney Thompson in a playoff. Won again in 1983 at the Canadian Open, this time beating Johnny Miller in a playoff. In all, John won 11 times on the PGA Tour and 10 times so far on the Champions Tour. He has seven top 10 finishes in majors. He was named the 1992 PGA Tour Comeback Player of the Year. In 2013, he was inducted into the Southern California Golf Association's Hall of Fame. And now you can hear John on his show, Connected with John Cook, on Sirius XM's PGA Tour channel. And I'm very excited. He is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, John, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, Chris. And I uh, appreciate you having me follow my great friend, Bob Friend. Always a great follow. Always. And Bob was very complimentary of you, John. Uh, at the beginning, when uh, when he uh, came on, he said, uh, uh, "Not only did he admire you, uh, but also what a what a beautiful golf swing you had, and mm-hmm. it, was, you know, it was fantastic in its simplicity." So, very complimentary of you. Well, he's a good he's a good man, great family, and uh, always enjoyed being around Bob and being in Pittsburgh and, and playing at Oakmont and playing in some of the events that he had. So, uh, I've Happy to follow Bob and glad he had a kid that went to Ohio State. You like that? 
Well, John, I, I want to start by going back to when you first got introduced to the game. I know your dad, Jim, was a, a PGA Tour official, but, you know, you were a pretty good all-around athlete as a young man. Talk about uh, your introduction to the game of golf and why you ended up sticking with that over the other sports. Uh, it, it started a long, long time ago. We were still living in Ohio at the time. My dad uh, was a high school and college football coach around the state, ended up at uh, Ohio State as a, as a football coach, up to Akron University as a football coach and a baseball coach, and then took a job with Firestone. And at the time, you know, this is, you know, I'm five or six years old, and uh, dad had just took a position with Firestone. And as an employee of the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company, you could join Firestone Country Club for uh, a fee of $300 a year. And uh, wow. he got uh, my sister and I into the junior program just to, you know, just to go down and hit some golf balls and learn about the game. Uh, and uh, that's kind of how we started. It was, you know, way back when in the junior program at Firestone, uh, dad got moved out, uh, moved us out to California when I was in the third grade. Uh, so uh, didn't me- don't remember a whole lot about Akron, Ohio. But uh, he certainly uh, got us involved in, in the game. Uh, also, when we got to California, obviously, you could play uh, sports all season. So I played football. I played basketball. Uh, I did play some baseball, but it kind of interfered with my golf. And uh, football and basketball were great complementary games to, um, to the game of golf. And uh, so I stuck with that uh, through high school. Uh, football, I, I played up until my, uh, after, until my junior year of, of high school. And then I kind of moved on. And actually my, my football coach was also our high school golf coach. And he thought that I would be better served as a golfer instead of a, trying to be a quarterback or a, or a safety. Um, and then basketball, I played through high school. So, uh, it just was, you know, we're an athletic family. Dad was a, you know, a, kind of a, a four letter, um, four-year athletes uh, there in the Columbus area. So uh, athletics were a big part of our family and um, still love, you know, watching and playing all sports. But uh, as I kind of grew up and grew, grew along in, into high school, um, and just kind of decided that uh, golf is going to give me a better avenue to get into college and, and get a college education. Um, I wasn't I, I, six foot and 150 pounds. I wasn't going to be any Division One quarterback, and I certainly wasn't Division One basketball player. Although I could, I could shoot the eyes out of it. There's no doubt about that. But uh, I could, uh, I just golf gave me a, a, a greater opportunity, and then my association with Ken Venturi also certainly helped as I, I just got better and better at, at the game uh, as I went through high school and felt like I just got better and better. Um, almost every single year that I played through college and on in the professional level. And you mentioned Ken Venturi. When did you first start working with Mr. Venturi? Uh, I was 14 when uh, I got introduced to Kenny. Uh, he was a big auto racing fan. And my father with Firestone uh, was the head of the Firestone uh, racing division. And they, they got to be friendly from uh, Firestone Country Club, but also through the years, of uh, Kenny just being around racetracks and uh, being a you know great fan of the, of the sport of auto racing, 
Um, my dad uh, invited him up to a, a tire testing up at Laguna Seca Raceway. Uh, I think that, you know, finally Jones and Al Unser and, and, uh, you know, that, that whole crew with uh, Mario Andretti, they were testing tires up at Laguna Seca and Kenny had a, a Cobra, AC Cobra, one of the first ones that you see. Um, and, uh, he, uh, he, he took it up there. My dad put some tires on for him and let him run around the racetrack and, you know, of course, uh, Kenny wanted to reciprocate in some way. And my dad just said, hey, we just joined Mission Host Country Club. Uh, I know you're the director of golf there. I got a 14-year-old son, pretty good player. Thought, da she's one of those things. And Kenny said, oh, yeah, just bring them out. We'll have a look at them. And uh, from there, I, we uh, we met and uh, we started a, a relationship. And it, it, didn't, it didn't end until he, you know, passed away. Uh, in 2013, so it's uh, you know, it's 40 years of uh, just learning the game and talking the game, and uh, just uh, I was uh, just so blessed and uh, to have Kenny in my life as as my mentor and my coach. He was somebody I could talk to. Um, I listened to him. I watched. I observed. I listened to his stories, why he did things, uh, and um, you know, I just was uh, so influenced by. You know, his great knowledge of the game and influenced by my father's knowledge of just how to be better at what I was trying to do. And John, besides the X's and O's of the golf swing, what's something that that Kenny shared with you that uh, whether it was an advice, a story, something along those lines that just always stuck with you? You know, it's interesting, Chris, that uh, we if I was working on something, we would go hit balls. Um, but if we really weren't working on anything, it, it was very simple. He had very simple thoughts. Uh, my, my, my swing is very simple. Uh, it, it, it got more simple as I got, you know, from 14 to 18, as my body was growing and I was getting stronger, uh, I didn't have to manipulate the club. Um, I could, you know, as I was getting stronger, my body would start to take over. And so little adjustments were along the way. Uh, and those just kind of happened. Um, so if we were working on something, we would go hit balls. But Chris, mainly what we did was we played a lot of golf and uh, we talked a lot of golf on the golf course. Uh, we would, I, I would go warm up and Kenny would just say, I'll meet you on the first tee in 30 minutes. And off we went and we would just play, 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 play. And we talked about shots. We talked about strategies. We talked about hole location. We talked about shaping shots, uh, what side of the tee, um, to go to. Uh, why uh, you went to one side of the tee, and uh, you know, just you know, very basic uh, fundamentals of the game. And once you got a grasp of those fundamentals, uh, and you got confidence in your uh, process, uh, then you know you just go play golf. So basically, what he always tried to get me to do was get my my golf swing and my routine from the practice tee to the first tee. And from then on, I just, I observed, we played and boy, did we play a lot of golf holes together. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, at the time he could still really play and really hit golf shots and, you know, the kind of the better he played, the more excited he got. And, you know, he got, he started to get competitive and it was, it's just it was great fun to be around him and, and play that many, that many holes of golf with him. When you're preparing to play in a golf tournament like you are this coming weekend or, or you're out in the middle of a golf tournament and it, 
Can you still hear him? Can you still hear him in your head saying things to you if if something starts to go wrong or as you're trying to strategize on how to play a golf hole? Can you hear his voice in your head? I, I believe I can, Chris, and just because the, the basic notes that I would take as we were working on things or we were playing were very simple, and they were still the same notes. So I, I have, a shoe bo- have a shoe box full of scorecards and notepads, and they all say the same thing. So if I ever get off a little bit, uh, I know exactly what to do. Um, you know, one, when one swing thought, one simple thought, and, uh, and you, you kind of can get back on track. I don't get uh, too far off track. Um, I don't compete much anymore. So it's more of a, you know, an anxiety thing for me. Um, but like this week, uh, playing here in Branson, um, you know, I'm excited to play. I've been playing. Uh, I've been, you know, through this whole pen, uh, pandemic, I've, been lucky enough that our club was open and I played a lot of golf and I feel like, you know, I'm fairly prepared, but, you know, my expectations is so high uh, because of my past career, but then I have to lower those expectations because I don't play, you know, with these great players that often. So it's fun to be out with them. Um, I'll, I'll be, you know, I hopefully hope to be competitive these couple weeks and maybe, you know, I'll get better and better each, each round that I play. Uh, I'm not expecting a whole lot, and but I'm expecting to you know, enjoy myself and being being back out competing because that's what I did for so long, and uh, that's what Kenny instilled in me is if you're going to go compete, you know, <laughs> go try to win. Um, I'm not saying that because these great players have played a lot more competitive golf than I have the last three or four years, but uh, uh, I, I know where my game is, and I feel I, I feel confident in my game. Just have to go out and trust and stay out of my own way. That's my big deal, Chris, is getting <laughs> in my own way. Just, uh, just go play like I'm playing with you know playing with my buddies. And uh, if I can do that, you know what? I'll I'll, I'll have a good time for these uh, these next two weeks. John, I want to take you back to your time at at Ohio State, and I read that both Jack Nicholas and Tom Weiskopf lobbied to get you to go play at Ohio State. What was it like being uh, re- essentially recruited by those two guys? You know, it's funny that, uh, you know, back in those days, you could help recruit. And uh, so uh, Coach Brown, I, I had played in the 1974 U.S. Amateur as a 16-year-old. I qualified, and I got paired in a practice round with uh, with uh, two uh, Ohio two alumni from Ohio State, Mike uh, Mike Good and and uh, Fritz Smith, and they were, you know, of course, great friends with the coach, uh, Coach Jim Brown. And you know, I, of course, I loved Ohio State because my you know, father coached there. And we were big, you know, we we were the, basically the contingent of Ohio State fans in Southern California and Trojan Nation, which wasn't easy in those days uh, to, to be the uh, to, to be the the alumni there, but. You know, I'd always been uh, interested in Ohio State, and uh, sure enough, I got a couple letters from the coach. Uh, I did receive a, uh, a a beautiful letter from uh, from Jack, um, you know, talking about the you know the great talking points of Ohio State, and you know all of that. And and, and Tom Weisskopf would call me. He would call the you know the back in those days, there's no cell phone, so it was he'd call the house line, and you know, I'd be sitting at dinner with the family and you know, on whatever night it would be. And, you know, Tom Weisskopf, my sister would get up from the dinner table and answer the phone and, 
there was, uh, hey, uh, this is Tom Weisskopf. Is John, is John around? <laughs> and my sister Kathy would look at me. She also went to Ohio State. She was an academic All-American there with Meg Mallon and Rosie Jones. But uh, she would look at me and go, John, Tom Weisskopf's on the phone for you. Like one of those things. <laughs> <laughs> this was, you know, it was kind of meant to be. And Tom and I got to be great friends. And, uh, you know, I took all my recruiting trips and, you know, I, just being a Southern Cal kid, I mean, I was a real UCLA fan. Um, I wasn't much of a USC fan, but, you know, I got recruited by them. They were a great golf program at the time. Uh, UCLA was just getting started. Arizona State, uh, I was very, very interested in, um, you know, a couple other schools and, and uh, Ohio State came along, and I just, you know, I kind of started weighing things, and if I was ever going to get better, and this is one of the things that my father told me, is if you ever want to get better, you got to go challenge yourself. you got to get out, you got to get outside of your comfort zone, and my comfort zone was beautiful weather, dome golf, uh, all of that. If I wanted to get better, I had to learn to play in some abnormal conditions, and that certainly was the case in Columbus sometimes. Um, but a great program there, played a great schedule. Jim Brown, Coach Jim Brown, recruited a, a, a great golf team there. Everybody on that golf team uh, basically were, uh, were great athletes. Uh, they played other sports all the way through high school. They excelled at other sports through high school. They, they, they knew what the meaning of team was. And uh, to recruit a kid out of Southern California, kind of opened the doors for him. And we all got along. We had, uh, you know, Two great players from Michigan, a couple from Canada, a wonderful, you know, two wonderful players from New York, uh, Mark Balin, Joey Sindelar. Um, you know, so we, he, he molded a team that was, uh, you know, really good at being a team, competitive because they wanted to win as a team. Uh, and, but we all knew our individual talents and our individual places on that team, uh, just like you would in basketball or you would in hockey or you would in football. And uh, that's what the great thing about going to Ohio State was. And you guys win a national championship in 1979. What was that like? You know, it was so, so fun that, uh, you know, long story short, in 1978, we were the number one team in the country. We won a lot of golf tournaments, and we beat the best players and the best teams. And we went to the NCAAs in Oregon at Eugene Country Club, and we just kind of spit the bit. It was awful. Um, and, uh, we, some of us had played early in the week in a U.S. Open qualifier that was after the Sunny Hannah in, uh, in Pennsylvania and then flew across and we just weren't prepared to play. And the next year we, we had a really nice season and we were so, so, um, devoted and, and, uh, you know, just we wanted to win. Uh, we, we knew we could win and, uh, we were so focused on winning. The, the national championship that uh, nothing got in our way. And uh, when we did it in, in horrible conditions on uh, the last the last round, we were down at Bermuda Run uh, at Lake Forest down in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh, if anybody remembers that uh, Black Friday at Muirfield where uh, Tom Watson shot 69 and nobody else broke, I think 75 or something, um, we played that day down in North Carolina. It wasn't much better, I can promise you that. But we were, you know, we were accustomed to that. We were prepared for it. We came from a, a few shots down, um, and uh, we, we we passed uh, Oklahoma State and uh, ended up winning the national championship. And 
I can't even tell you what that meant. It's, uh, you know, I, I hold a putter on the last hole, um, you know, that uh, kind of sealed our win. And I, I remember the, the team kind of running across the green and it just was, it was like a, you're taking back to basketball and hitting the winning shot or taking back to football, you know, throwing, you know, you're throwing that, uh, you know, the little slant that uh, scored a touchdown. It just was, it, it just brought you back to such, you know, great team sport. And that's why we, that's why we all went to, to college was to play and represent an institution like Ohio State. And, uh, you know, we were so, so proud. You know, not to just win, but to win for the coach and to win for the for the university. And you were prepared for that kind of win because in '78 you win the U.S. Amateur Championship. You beat Scott Hoke five and four. Um, thinking back on on that that week and and uh, what what it amounts to as a major championship victory, I, I think in uh, for most folks, talk about what you remember about uh, about that and getting to hoist that trophy. Yeah, it was really something. Uh, Bobby Clampett was the clear number one uh, as an amateur uh, in '78. He was as good a player maybe as there was on the planet. I mean, he was he was that good. Uh, he contended in professional events. Uh, he was the clear number one uh, that year in, in amateur golf. Uh, he got to the semis. Uh, Scott beat him uh, on the 20th hole in the uh, in the semifinal. I beat. Uh, uh, a kid and uh, a great old friend of ours, uh, Mike Peck, went on to Stanford. Uh, he, he was playing at Stanford. I beat him in 20 holes. Uh, so it was uh, down to Scott and I. And I, I just, I was so prepared that week to play. I spent a week by myself at Muirfield uh, there in Columbus, just hitting golf balls, playing golf, just working on my game. I was, I was so prepared to play. Um, that, uh, I just, uh, I went out and just, it, it's kind of like being around the uh, Tiger, uh, for, for so many years that he didn't prepare the week of the event. He prepared the week or two before the event. And that's why when he got to any event, he didn't have to think about anything but playing golf. He didn't have to think about his golf train. He didn't have to think about anything. And that's kind of how I felt there in 1978. I was so prepared to play. That uh, when I got to Plainfield in New Jersey, I didn't even think about anything other than beating my opponent, beating the golf course. And I beat the golf course, you know, for, for six days in a row. And then uh, Scott uh, was just the, the last one standing, and um, I had him down pretty good. And he won a couple holes uh, on the back nine to make it five and four. Otherwise, I'd, I'd have walked him in pretty early. But uh, he was a great competitor. He's still a great friend. Um, I would love to have him as a partner anytime, uh, anywhere. Um, Scott Hope is, a, a, is just a great competitor, but uh, that opened up a lot of doors for me, Chris. Uh, playing in the Masters, uh, playing in the, in the World Series of Golf, which my father was running at the time up at Firestone in 1978. It was great to get back there. Um, played a number of professional events, uh, you know, that next spring. Um, you know, leading into the NCAA. So I was, we were prepared. I was prepared to, you know, for basically anything that came my way. John, just a couple more before I let you go. And you break through and get your first PGA Tour victory at the 81 Bing Crosby National Pro-Am, which I'm guessing was almost like a, a home game for you. And yeah. as I was going back and looking over that tournament, you finished well in advance of the other guys that you would ultimately end up facing in a playoff. Was it agonizing 
waiting around? Was it oh. exciting? What was that like for you? So we didn't start the event, Chris, until Saturday. We got rained out Thursday and Friday. So now it's going to be a three-round event on three different golf courses. So we were going to end on Monday. So guys were everywhere. They were at, they were at Pebble Beach, Spyglass. They were at Cypress Point, finishing on 9 and 18. Uh, nobody knew what really what was going on. There was no electronic scoreboards. There was some scoreboards you know, around the golf courses. But you really didn't know, and I got done fairly early, like you said. Uh, Barney Thompson actually was in the very first group out. I think he, I'm not sure where he finished, uh, but he was in the first group out and, and done. Um, I was not far behind, so I had a lot of time. And when I got done, you know, like, you know, seven or eight or nine hundred par was leading. I think I finished at seven. Um, but you know, I, I just somebody was going to break loose and, and, and beat that. Well, I got in the scoring tent and they, they had a radio and they said, if there's a playoff, you're going to play off at number one at Pebble Beach. You know, so I had a good, you know, solid hour, hour and a half to wait around. And sure enough, you know, the kind of the wind came up and the fog came in. And next thing you know, 10 under became eight under, became seven under and I uh, find myself in a playoff there at, uh, at Pebble Beach. So I was on the putting green when they said, okay. There's five guys left standing. Let's go. And off we went um, down number one at uh, Pebble Beach, five of us. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I had one state amateur there in 75, state high school in 76 there. So um, I was a, you know, great fan of Pebble Beach and very, very special to be, uh, you know, the Bing Crosby champion there. Nate, uh, Nathaniel Crosby um, was a big part of the tournament. Cap, my captain was still around. Unfortunately, Bing had passed, but, uh, you know, we had all become very good friends and, you know, I'll just never forget the, you know, walking off that third playoff hole, you know, making a par against Hale Irwin and winning. And, you know, my wife was there and, um, you know, we, she, she was pregnant with our first child. I mean, this is real golf. This is real life. And, you know, you're out and you're 23 years old and, and you, you got a baby on the way. You're newly married and, you know, you're winning golf tournaments. I mean, it's it just, uh, you know, you can't make this stuff up. And you win $40,000 that week. Yeah. And I'm sure at the time you felt like you were a millionaire. Jim Herman just wins $1.1 million this past weekend at the, at the Wyndham Championship. Talk about thinking, you know, $40,000 was all the money in the world. Now looking at what guys are winning. You know, what was interesting too is the three round event. So they cut the purse by a quarter. So we, I didn't get the full. I didn't get the full full amount, which I think was like going to be fifty four thousand. So it was, uh, wow. you know, but that's what it was. You know, that's what it was back in those days. And you know, a win is a win. I've got all the crystal. I've got the trophy. Um, you can always say, hey, you know, what if I'd have won, been this, you know, done this, you know, in this in this time, uh, it would be different. But you know what? It, we were. That's what we did. We were professional golfers. I had a you know, a, a great support system. My wife, who's, you know, we're still married 40 some years later. Um, you know, couldn't have done it without her. And, uh, that's what we did. You know, we traveled, we played golf, we made a living, we raised the family and we kept moving along. And, you know, 40 years later, here we are still doing the same thing. John, before I let you go, um, you're in the legends, uh, tournament this coming weekend. You're doing a wonderful golf show now on uh, on Sirius XM. Let our listeners know about how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing. 
uh, whether it's on social media or on your uh, on your show. Yeah, it's great. Uh, so we, we uh, Craig Tan and I do a show on SiriusXM on Monday afternoon from three to four o'clock p.m. on uh, uh, SiriusXM ninety two or XM ninety two Sirius two hundred eight. Uh, you can always get me at uh, John Cook Golf uh, on Twitter. Uh, I do some Instagram, but it's mainly for families and friends. I I, I do answer some Twitter stuff, but um, it's uh, you know I have a great time doing the, the show with with Craig. He's such a professional. Uh, we have great guests. It's called Connected for a Reason. Like all the people and you know through through the game of golf and through the entertainment industry and through business. Uh, everybody that has a connection in golf, we try to get on the show. Uh, that's why we call it Connected. And, um, you know, I, I still do, I, I do mostly uh, a, a lot of stuff for Golf Channel and the, and the PJ Tour Champions. Uh, so uh, I, I do a lot of that. So, you know, I'm in the side of the business that Ken Venturi actually ended up as well. So it's kind of a roundabout uh, way to, to honor the great man, Ken Venturi. And kind of like my wife says, uh, all of a sudden, I'm talking for a living, and I probably didn't say 15 words in the first 20 years of our marriage. I was that shy. <laughs> so uh, she says, I've got it all built up. So I'm having a blast doing the radio show. I'm having a blast doing television. You know, I'm out playing again and uh, and trying to compete. But you know what? I'm going to have some fun this next couple of weeks and, uh, and enjoy the great game that we're all associated with. Well, John, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come and be a part of the show. You're fantastic. I hope uh, we get the privilege of catching up with you again sometime. Anytime, Chris, anytime. Love to talk about golf. Love to talk about this great game and all the connections that we have. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Stay safe. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up again soon. I appreciate it. Thank you. See you, John. That's a great John Cook, and he comes as billed. A great guy with a great golf swing that uh, did, a, did a heck of a lot, achieved a lot out on both the PGA Tour and so far out on the Champions Tour. I love the fact that yeah, he's going in with the mindset of, of winning. I love that. And, uh, and having a good time, right? Because at the end of the day, that's what this great game is about. Enjoying the, the people that you're out playing with, having a really good time, and, uh, and going in with a mindset that, uh, why can't I win? Uh, his show like he mentioned, connected with John Cook on Sirius XM. He and Craig can. Craig was on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago. The two of those guys together are magic. So I can't recommend that show enough. John, a fantastic player. You go back and you look at his time at Ohio State and all of the great golfers, including obviously Jack Nicholas and Tom Weiskopf, that played their college golf there. And John's name is right at the top of the list for wins and uh, what he was able to achieve there. Again, three-time All-American they won the Big Ten Championship all three years he was there, wins a, a USM or wins a national championship. Hard to top that. So a great career and a great guy. I look forward to having him back on soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, Bob Grissett, I want to give a shout out to a few of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Golf Pride. In golf, light grip pressure releases power. Golf Pride engineered a secret that pros know. A larger lower hand encourages lighter pressure. Plus 4 technology is designed with four additional layers, which reduces tension in the lower hand to generate more power. Play Plus 4 and release the secret the pros know. Now available on Tour Velvet, the winningest grip on Tour. Grip confidence, grip golf pride. I also want to remind you about our friends over at Finn Cycles. It's time to rethink golf. 
The game is at a tipping point. The young people we need in the game don't have four and a half hours to spend out on the course. Pairing fin cycles with a desire to play ready golf can cut playing time in half because all golfers go directly to their own golf ball. Plus, it's tons of fun. Go online to finscooters.com and click on Find a Fin for a course that has them near you. I also want to give another shout-out to our friends over at the McLemore. The McLemore Mountaintop community rests atop the highlands of Lookout Mountain, Georgia, overlooking historic McLemore Cove and Pigeon Mountain. Surrounded on all sides by state and national parks, historic land districts, and private land trusts. The resort features an 18-hole Reese Jones and Bill Bergen championship course, a gated residential community, and a planned clubhouse opening in the fall of 2020, plus planned hotel and conference center. The dramatic 18-hole course is made up of a variety of golf experiences, combining canyon holes, highland holes, cliff edge holes that are well-suited for the beginning golfer as well as the senior player. McLemore also offers a wonderful six-hole short course called the Karen. Designed by Bill Bergen, the Karen provides players with a short warm-up or cool-down before or after a round, or a relaxing way to improve one's game with family and friends. McLemore is located a short driving distance from Atlanta, Nashville, Knoxville, Birmingham, and Huntsville, and just 35 minutes from downtown Chattanooga, voted number one best town in America two years in a row by Outside Magazine. While a private course, McLemore offers stay-and-play packages for guests in club-managed properties, as well as a number of membership opportunities, including social memberships, non-resident memberships, and corporate memberships as well. For more information, please visit McLemore online at themclemore.com or give them a call at 800-329-8154. All right, now joining me here on Next on the Tee is one of the top instructors in the game, and that's Bob Grissett. I want to give you some background on Bob. He played his college golf at the University of Miami. He's been named by Golf Digest as one of the top instructors in the state of Florida. He's the former director of instruction at the club at Morningside in Rancho Mirage, California, now resides back down in South Florida. He's written a couple of books, 10 Lessons, The True Fundamentals of the Golf Swing, and 10 Keys, Basic Elements of the Golf Swing. He's a good friend of, uh, we have a good mutual friend in Tom Patry. Tom says, you got to get this guy on the show. And when TP talks, I absolutely listen. And I'm very honored that Bob is with me tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Bob, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Chris. How are you? Thanks for having me. Uh, it, it, it's nice to know that uh, TP had such a great influence over you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, Bob. Sometimes I go I go both ways. I'm not really sure, but uh, God knows I love TP. He's a, he's a wonderful friend. Oh, he's the best. He is the best. Bob, when I when I was doing my research on you, the first thing I really wanted to go was back to your to your college golf days at the University of Miami. But uh, in trying to research it, I was I was sort of stunned to find out that uh, Miami, at least no longer, has a men's golf program. Got a ladies program. No men's got college golf at the University of Miami. What happened? Do you know? When I went to college, the uh, the golf coach was actually uh, Dr. Houston. He was chairman of the finance department, and he didn't even play golf. <laughs> we, wow. we had our own individual, we, which which twenty seven colleges participated in at the at the Biltmore, uh, but uh, golf has never been a, a priority. I think we had a number of ladies that went on to be pretty good. Uh, Donna uh, uh, Albers, I believe. Uh, but there were a few of them that that became good. So I I really don't know. I to, to be honest, I haven't kept up with my alma mater too much. But uh, 
with the COVID that's going on and everything, my fear is that a lot of these golf programs are going to be go by the wayside. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, let's go back to the beginning with you, Bob. Talk to talk about uh, the sports you played as a kid and and when golf became something that uh, that you decided you wanted to pursue. Yes, well, I played everything. I was primarily a baseball player. Started when I was uh, really young with that. I ended up with uh, five professional contract offers at one point. Um, wow! But I played football, played soccer, I played basketball, and golf and baseball. Um, and golf, um, we, I, I really got serious with it my my junior year in high school, and I went to a small prep school in Wisconsin called Wayland Academy. And then went on, obviously, to the University of Miami. Um, I was going to go to Wake Forest. Uh, and the reason I chose Miami was because when I went down to Wake Winston-Salem, the uh, weather was a little chilly. It was in the winter. I was with my dad. It was like 45 degrees. And I went to Miami, and it was 75 degrees. So I liked that. <laughs> and then the other reason down was because uh, someone who became a mentor to me uh, and who I wanted to work with was Bob Toski, who I uh, worked with for about four years when he was at the Ocean Reef Club in North Key Largo. My first teacher of the game, my mom was a really good player, and my first instructor was Johnny Revolta. John was at Evanston Golf Club in Chicago. I grew up in Illinois, so we would we would drive in there, and it was I can remember my first lesson with him where I walked across the you had to walk across the 18th fairway to get there, and you know I told my mom I was 11 years old, and I said that's the biggest green I've ever seen. And I was walking uh, to the tee. Mr. Revolta was with a lady, and, and and I could hear him in a voice say, "Ma'am, you just ran out of talent, and I just ran out of patience." So, <laughs> wow. Uh, but that was uh, that was. Uh, I I said, "Mom, he seems mean." She says, "No, never mind. He's great." So uh, he was a great help to him to me in in those early years, and and obviously Toski. Uh, you know, was a legend in the and great player too, but a legend probably more so for his teaching. Yeah, and when I was uh, looking over your website, it's uh, bobgrissetgolf.com. Um, you talk about some of the the great instructors that you've worked with or or studied. You talk about Toski, David Ledbetter, Jack Grout, Jack Nicholas's mm-hmm. teacher. Talk about what you learned from those guys. Uh, a little bit of ev- of uh, everything from everyone. Everyone, uh, I would, you know, Jack Grout was at at the time was at Lagorse in Miami. I didn't take a lot of lessons from him, but a few. Uh, I would say Toski was probably the main influence. Uh, I also worked with a la- lady who's not mentioned. His name was Alice Kirby. Um, Alice's sister uh, was the live-in uh, girlfriend for Sam Snead. So one of the things that I got to do when I was in college. Uh, was on uh, probably 15 or 16 occasions over a couple of years. Um, Alice's sister, Lucille, was the living girlfriend for, for Homer Sneed, Sam's brother. And Sam would come down for the winter to play with his brother, and he didn't like playing with girls. So uh, playing golf with girls anyway. So uh, long, long story short, sometimes Paul, Alice's husband, was invited, and I was invited like 15 or 16 times. So that was quite a quite an education to play with him at that time. Um, so, you know, in those in those years, um, learned a lot about the golf swing, learned a lot about playing golf. I think Toski was really, really uh, good with that. Um, um, struggled, you know, in, in those years, you there was no all exempt tour. You were going through Monday morning qualifiers. 
Um, so, so did that and then uh, ultimately uh, hung up my playing days and decided I would teach golf, and that's what I've done ever since. Quest, uh, in terms of learning all that I could about the golf swing, never ceased. So that continues to this day. I mean, I think any instructor that's worth their salt never stops learning. You always continue to try to learn. So I want to go back. You got to play a dozen plus times out with Sam Snead. What was that like? Um, scary the first couple of times. Uh, he was nice to me, uh, which which was interesting um, because. But it was incredible just to watch him play. Um, there were some things that I I looked back and looked back at his golf swing. I was uh, had con- incredible depth in his right hip. Uh, on the backswing and, and, uh, uh, was just the, the purest, obviously the sweetest swing you've ever seen and maybe the, maybe the purest ball striker that I had seen to that point. I mean, later on in my, uh, in my quest, I played a lot with, with Mo Norman. So I was able to, to have two of the best that ever lived in terms of ball striking. I was able to, uh, play with them at some time in my life. Bob, one of the other instructors you listed on your website is Mac O'Grady, a guy that played out on tour in the 70s and the 80s, and uh, a guy who could play either way, left-handed or right-handed. And um, I actually saw when I was looking him up, one of the things that I, I sort of got a chuckle about is he once tried to enter the Chrysler Team Championship as both members of the team. He wanted to play one ball right-handed and one ball left-handed. But they uh, they yeah. wouldn't let him do it. But um, certainly well, an eccentric a, guy. And, uh, what what did you learn from Mac? Well, he had an ongoing battle with Dean Beeman, who was the commissioner. But uh, Mac is uh, uh, Mac is a savant, uh, and I think, in uh, all honesty, I think he's made more contributions to the uh, study of the golf swing probably than anyone I've ever known. Uh, and that's that's a mouthful. Uh, but yeah, most definitely, he really built his left hand. He is left-handed, by the way, but he built his left-handed swing to to prove his theories. Um, and you know, a lot of it was different. It was different than things that you'd heard before. Um, and he's still around today. He's actually living in Japan now, um, doing a little bit of painting, and comes back to the states to do some schools here and there. But uh, you know, I'm one of those. Those that well, it probably is everybody. Every single person that ever ended up working with Mac ultimately got kicked off the reservation. So um, <laughs> that that would uh, there, there you can find a laundry list of those guys. Bob, you posted a picture of Jack Nicholas uh, putting on your Instagram page, and in my mind, you know, Mr. Nicholas is the greatest putter of all time, particularly. Any any time he had to he had to make a putt, it seemed like he did. Um, wanted to get your thoughts on uh, on Jack Nicholas's putting stroke and and uh, a comment that was made uh, on that picture is something that I that I agree with. It's it's amazing to me what a great putter he was, but no one ever tried to emulate it. What are your thoughts on his putting stroke? Well, uh, my main thought is that as you stated, he made everything. Um, he wasn't necessarily the best chipper in the world or pitcher or sand player in the world until later in his career when he worked with Phil Rogers. But early in, I mean, I don't know what he would have won if he had been, if he had had a great short game early in his career, but his percentage of getting up and down was really good because, uh, you know, any, anything inside eight to 10 feet, um, I mean, he made all those. Um, 
main thing that he tried to do when he putted was get comfortable. And, and he wouldn't draw it back till he got comfortable. But uh, he uses kind of a Paul Runyon type grip where the hands are kind of turned under both of them. So the clubs are in the palm, but it takes the wrists out of the stroke. Uh, and um, great putting stroke. I, I agree. I don't know why people don't copy it because uh, I think your summation, you know, the only argument I might have, there might be one person that's a better putter than him in the history of the game, and that might be Mr. Woods toss-up. Bob, I want to get some some playing lessons from you because you're such a, a great instructor of the game. And talk about how, how can we gain more control of our club base, and how do we know when we're when it's you know getting away from us? Well, that's a big that's a big question, Chris. <laughs> um, the, the the largest single uh, swing fault that I see on a day to day basis. And uh, I would I would also see it with professionals that are struggling with their ball hitting, but would be the in, in amateurs it's just very very common would be early extension. So what early extension is? It's any time in your golf swing when your pelvis or your knees are moving toward the golf ball. Uh, in a golf swing, uh, you you have to bend over to play golf, so we call that flexion in terms of medical terms. In the backswing, the best players in the world extend or they come out of their flexion. That's how they stay centered. Um, and then they also side bend always in the opposite of the turn. Uh, so on the downswing, they have to get back into flexion or they have to rehinge their hips. I mean, there was a recent picture of Tiger practicing that, which people thought was a little strange, but all he was really doing was trying to get his hips rebent on the downswing so he didn't pop up. So what happens is when you early extend, the club gets trapped a little bit behind you, the path gets a little excessively to the right, you're going to release it early, so you're going to have hip stall of impact. I don't know if any of this sounds familiar, but <laughs> you get you get hip stall of impact and then you high rate of closure or a flip, and you can hit it either way. I mean, you're going to end up with total military golf where you get two-way misses. Uh, so that would be the biggest thing to try to control uh, is to learn uh, um, to do drills uh, that are going to help you with early extension. I mean, it's, it's what I deal with continually all the time, almost every day. And one of the things you show on your website is thoracic spine rotation. Uh And, you know, I think based on how how much you have of that can can help you improve how far you can hit the golf ball. Talk about thoracic spine rotation, how much and how do we know when we're we've got, you know, I guess sort of the proper amount of that. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it rotation. I would call it extension. So the, the, the spine extends, and that's actually what elevates the arms on the backswing. Every player in the history of the game has done it. Not necessarily everybody has known they've done it because it wasn't taught. Um, but through, through using uh, any form of, of 3D that we have today, which would be sensors that can measure bends, tilts, turns, and sways, you know, we kind of know what the spine does. So the long drive guys would extend the most. So extension is basically – your thoracic spine extending, in a sense, almost back towards the target. If it's leaning towards the target, that would be considered like a reverse spine angle. And there are some players in the history of the game, Colin Montgomery, Johnny Miller, that did that. But most of them extend to a point that where the spine would go from, let's say, 40 degrees forward bend at address, the top of the swing, it would get to about zero. I know that's hard for people to understand, but that's absolutely what happens. 
And their bend at address, which is usually somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 to 10 degrees to the right because their right hand's lower on the club, uh, they would go from right bend at address to left bend at the top. And to stay level, uh, your left bend would have to equal whatever your forward bend was at address. So in simple terms, uh, if you're bent forward 40 degrees at address, you have to side bend to the left 40 degrees on the backswing in order to keep the same height. Um, and and make and that allows your shoulders to turn perpendicular to your bent over spine. But it's a tremendous source of power. Um, the extension pieces on the forward swing are also a tremendous source of power. And, and, and you know, when I was talking about early extension, it's the same same thing. People have never been taught how their spine functions in a golf swing, and the spine is the engine of the swing. And that's that's what I'm doing on a daily basis, whether it's fixing early extension or if it's fix, fixing turning inflection on the backswing. Like the older player who says, well, I can't turn, I can't get my arms up, uh, I, I lack flexibility. I've taken a lot of people that lack flexibility, and I, they get flexibility in about five minutes. I think the main thing is that they get the correct information that's going to allow them. And it's not that complicated. It's pretty easy to do and pretty easy to understand. I have on, on my phone, Chris, I've got, uh, as Tom knows, I've got, uh, at this point, he might not know this, I've got 44,500 combination videos and or photos. Um, so when I'm teaching, I'm using a lot of that to demonstrate what the best players do. Because I think a lot of times people say that swing your swing or they all swing different, and I, I would disagree with that. Hands and arms are different. Uh, body motions, every tour player side bends to the left on the backswing. They extend their spine. They turn in the circle. They change flex in their knees. They get back in flexion in the downswing. They extend on the forward swing, and they right bend. Every tour player does that. So that's the commonality they have. The differences that they have is that John Rahm and Ricky Fowler are laid off at the top, and uh, Matthew Wolf is across the line. Uh, when they get down to mid-downswing where the left arm's parallel to the ground, they're all going to be pretty similar, and obviously impact's going to be pretty close to some variabilities in terms of hip rotation depending on a number of factors. But that's really a big key to being able to get consistent contact. I have three fundamentals that I teach. Number one is controlling the low point of the golf club. That's the most important thing, being able to hit the ground in the same place every time. Second fundamental is having enough power to play. Uh, you're not going to play very well if you, if, you, if you can't get home on par fours or hit long par threes or get home in three on par fives. And the third thing would be controlling the curve. And that's an interesting one that we could have a long conversation with because the, the uh, ball flight laws that were uh, perpetuated on, on uh, the public for the last 50 years were wrong. Um, TrackMan has, has, has proven what the correct ball flight laws are. You know, that's all due to a, to a scientist who published a book called, called The uh, Physics of Golf named Theodore Jorgensen. He did that in 1992. And the TrackMan technology has certainly aided in that. So, so Bob, I want to go back to a point you made a moment ago. Flexibility. He said... People come and say, well, I, I can't get my arms up. I, I'm, I'm not that flexible. And you can fix it in five minutes. How? By teaching them how the spine functions. Because if they stand erect, if they were to stand erect, and you told someone to bend forward, maybe everybody couldn't touch their fingers to the ground, but they could all bend forward 
45 or 40 degrees, whatever, which is enough to play golf with. And they can all stand up, too. Um, then if you ask them to side bend to the left or side bend to the right, they could do that as well. And I don't care how flexible or inflexible they are, they all can do that to some degree. They can all rotate when they're standing up. They can rotate to the right, rotate to the left, and, you know, almost 100% can do that to 90 degrees. The issue becomes is when you bend them forward, it changes the parameters. And the problem with golf instruction is that people have been taught to do one thing, and that's turn or rotate. And that's an ambiguous term. It certainly is part of what I call a pivot, but it's only a small part. Uh, the, the, the biggest uh, inducer to being able to turn more in the golf swing is learning to side bend and extend. That'll produce 40 to 50% more rotation. So that, it's a function of learning how to do that. And like I said, that can be learned in a very, very short period of time. I, I had a lady that taken a bunch of lessons, um, had spent, uh, everybody told her that she wasn't flexible enough. She needed to go see a trainer. She spent about 10000 on trainers, 20000 on lessons. And, uh, you know, I watched her swing and she was turning inflection, which what that means is that you're bent over and you're turning and staying bent over. You're not creating any extension in your spine. And uh, lo long story short, she was one of the ones that became flexible. And she did it in about four minutes. <laughs> Doesn't wow. take long once you explain to them what to do and you show them the exercises that they can do to do it. They can do it pretty quickly. And Bob, just a, from a from a... Going back to the basics, the very basics of, of setup. One of the things that, uh, that I didn't know anything about until just, you know, probably a year or two ago is, is changing my setup on the drive is kind of the, the reverse K. Setup as the reverse K to help you launch the, the golf ball better. Are you a believer? Is, is the reverse K the proper setup, uh, for driving and maybe just in general? Um, yes and no. Uh, I like to see the shoulders on top of the hips, on top of the ankles, on top of the feet. Um, I, the ball is forward. Uh, I don't like to see people leaning way to the right because it inhibits the ability to be able to side bend to the left on the backswing. I think this, the, the reverse K comes about because people are telling people they need to hit up on a driver. And there's no question that all the data and my track man or anybody's track man would validate that hitting up definitely hits the ball farther. But there's a right way to hit up and a wrong way to hit up. And the wrong way to hit up is to tilt more to the right, which is what most people do. Uh, when I work with the variety, uh, the variety of tour players that I work with, uh, you know, I can tell you that, that, that if 100 tour players came to me, they were having ball striking problems. 98 or 99 of them are going to have excessive right bend on the downswing. Uh, it's what I see every single time with a better player, and that creates, again, can help create early extension. At a minimum, will cause hip stall and, again, cause the path to go excessively to the right. Uh, they're hitting pushes, and then they try to roll it over with their hands, and they're hitting hooks. So a, a reverse K in the literal sense would have the right knee kicked way in. I, I, I don't see any of the top players in the game that have ever set up that way. I mean, Gary Player, you could say, but but he really didn't set up that way. What he did is he kicked his right knee in uh, before he took the club back. So it was really a part of his uh, uh, his pattern in terms of getting the swing started. And I, I I I listened to him on your show. That was terrific. He's great. Bob, you you've got a video on your Instagram page as well of of Tiger hitting putts with his right hand only. Talk about what yep. that can do to help us improve our putting stroke. 
Yeah, Tiger uh, starts every practice session, a very short putt, and it'll be right hand only. And once he hits a couple putts, then he'll set up a gate, which means he puts the uh, a tee on the outside and the inside of the putter to make sure the putter stays between that gate. And he'll continue right-handed. He'll add some length sometimes because he kind of practices short and long, which is a great way to practice. Um, but in Tiger's case, Tiger probably uh, – a putter doesn't – the best putters in the world have never swung straight back and straight through. There's always an arc to it. So the fact that he's using his right hand helps the arc. And the reason Tiger does it more than anything else, you'll hear him talk about it, when he's putting port poorly, he'll always say the same thing, that he wasn't able to release the putter. So there is a release with a putter on the forward part of the swing. It's got a release in the curve of the arc instead of going in and then straight through or trying to go straight back, which means you'd have to go shut going back. His arc and his putting stroke is abnormally large, meaning in, in Sam Putt Labs, when they tested all the different putters, Tiger's arc is probably the largest in the history of the game, uh, meaning the amount that the putter is opening and closing. But uh, nevertheless, uh, he's the best. Uh, you know whether everybody, but I think I think practicing right hand is is, is right hand only. I, in fact, I suggest it for chipping and pitching as well. I think it's a great hmm. way to practice, to learn to maintain lag, especially with with chipping and pitting, uh, pitching, uh, control the low point, uh, learn to pivot your body better. Uh, I think it's tremendous to use in uh, in full swings as well. Bob, you've written a couple of uh, of books. Like I say, one uh, is 10 Lessons, the, the True Fundamentals of the Golf Swing. Talk about, uh, talk about your books, how people can get a copy of them, and, and when, once they pick them up, well, what they'll be able to read and what they'll learn from it. There's two books. Ten Keys uh, was written basically for most people that play. It's a short book. It's 113 pages, but it's got a lot of powerful content. Uh, it kind of simplifies, uh, you know, I believe that a, a, burst, a person can learn a basic golf swing with 10 words, and that's sort of what the, the book that, uh, shows, although there's a lot of pictures in it. It shows grip, setup, everything. The larger book, um, it's 730 pages. Uh, as a hard copy, uh, it weighs a little over eight pounds. It's eight and a half wow. by 11. So always suggest that people, if they purchase it, it's probably better to own it uh, in the PDF version that you can download into your phone or tablet. But, you know, it's a book that, 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 that took a lot of love and a long time to write. And, you know, thankfully, uh, you know, there's many people in the industry, uh, a lot of the teachers that are in the industry uh, use it as their reference tool or use it with their golf schools. There's many, many schools and clubs that the entire staff has the book um you know i think uh you know it's how do you talk about something you wrote and sound arrogant or egotistical about it and at the same time you know uh get the point across that it's probably a great for everybody um and i have to i don't know how i can do that but i honestly think if i didn't if, if i hadn't written this book and and i saw this book uh i would buy it because it's it it really can help people a lot. There's a lot of drills. Uh, Chris, in teaching golf, the main thing for people to understand is that the golf swing is a feel, it's not a thought. 
And the only way you can change a pattern in a golf swing is either through drills or training aids. It's not through thought. You can't, you can't partition a one and a half second golf swing where the backswing is taking half the time and the impact area is taking tenths of a second and be thinking about things to do there. So using drills and or training aids, um, are, are the way you do it. So what, what, what both books do is they lay out a template of how to swing a golf club. Uh, they go through the ball flight laws. Um, obviously, the other book, being more advanced, gets deeper, has more drills in it, uh, more pictures than you could ever find. Because I think if I'm going to state something as a golf professional, I ought to be able to back up whatever I state uh, with evidence. And the evidence would be the, the best players that have ever played the game. So the book's available on my website, both of them. Uh, it's uh, it's com. Uh, spelling is B-O-B-G-R-I-S-S as in Sam, E-T-T as in Tom, uh, dot com. Um, and uh, again, I would suggest the PDF versions, load them under your phone, load them under your iPad, and uh, anybody can message me on Instagram at any time. Uh, if they have any questions, I'm always happy to answer. And talk about your handle on uh, on Twitter and on Instagram. How can they find you? Yeah, I'm I'm just at Bob Grissett on uh, on both uh, Instagram and Twitter, uh, and I'm also on Facebook as well. Uh, so uh, I have a nice following. I do a lot of posts. I've probably posted six thousand posts on Instagram. And all my Instagram posts go to Twitter too. By the way, that's one nice thing about Instagram is you can create a post there and it'll go to Facebook and Instagram at the same time. Um, which is, which is great. But uh, Instagram is awesome. I mean, as a, as a, I think anyone who is serious about their game, uh, Instagram is the place where you can get the most information. I think you would agree with that, even with, uh, with your show and everything else. I think you probably get the most bang for your buck from there. Am I assuming yeah. correctly? <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. Couldn't agree with that more. Yeah. Well, yeah. Bob. It's, it's certainly been a pleasure having you as part of the show. It's always, it's interesting to, to understand all of the uh, sort of the physics and the, um, the sort of mechanics of the golf swing and, and understand, kind of break it down to know where we're going wrong and what we can try to do to kind of get, get ourselves back on the right plane. I hope you'll come back and join me again sometime. A whole lot more I'd love to get into with you. Anytime, Chris. I really appreciate you having me and uh, the best to everyone out there and let's get better. That's right. Bob, take care. Stay safe, my friend. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. You too, Chris. Thanks, bud. Bye-bye. See you, Bob. That's a ba- uh, the great Bob Grissett. And, uh, and folks, uh, I, can't, I can't recommend his uh, Instagram feed hard enough. I mean, he's got all kinds of pictures, and he kind of breaks it down a little bit for you. Shows you know some of the angles and some of the things he was talking about tonight. He actually gives it to you in, the, in those pictures. So, he draws lines and angles so you can really get a visual for some of the things that he was trying to talk about tonight. So Bob Grissett uh, is uh, is one of the best teachers on the planet. And when you write an instructional book that weighs that much and has over 700 pages and you break it down to the detail that he does with all of the pictures and illustrations, you, you know he knows what he's talking about when it comes to the golf swing. So be sure to go check him out. All right, folks, time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. want to send out my sincere thanks to Bob Friend, John Cook, and Bob Grissett for joining me tonight. Please check out our website, nextonthetee.net. You'll be able to find our guest schedule on there and keep up to date 
with who we have scheduled to come on the show. And next week scheduled to join me is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry. Uh, another great instructor and the, and the host of uh, New Breed of Golf on Sirius XM's PGA Tour channel, uh, Michael Breed, will be a part of the show. And uh, and if you've seen Charlie Reimer's video on my website, nextonthetee.net, or either on uh, my Instagram page or Twitter page, at CT Mascaro, Charlie will be on the show as well. Get a little jab in there to Michael Breed as well. But uh, Charlie Reimer will be here. Uh, and as he says in the video, he's packing heat because he's bringing the president of the beautiful Macklemore Club, uh, Dwayne Horton, with him as well. So we'll be talking about the Macklemore and Charlie's time there and, and a little bit more about that project as well. So three first timers on the show next week, which will be very exciting. Really looking forward to having those guys all as part of the show. And folks, you can stream this show as a podcast on a number of great sites and apps like podcast.co, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Pod, uh, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and uh, radio.com. So we're, if you've got a favorite podcasting site, we're probably on it. So folks, thanks again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. We really appreciate the fact that you continue to make this show a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.